welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by University College London and the NIHR in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. to the Dementia Researcher podcast, bringing together early career researchers and leaders within the field to discuss their research hot topics and to share career tips. I'm Dr Fiona McLean and I am an Alzheimer's Research UK Fellow at the University of Dundee and I'm delighted to be hosting today's recording, talking to three amazing colleagues who have all recently embarked on setting up their own labs. So today, that's what we're going to focus on, learning how they got into their positions of leading their own groups, what they have learned in the process of setting up their labs and what tips and lessons they might have for anyone about to do this for themselves. So get your notepads at the ready. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Claire Durant from the University of Edinburgh, Dr. Ian Harrison from University College London, and Dr. Dean Buchanan-Kelly from Cardiff University. Hello. Hi. Hello. So I thought we'd kick it off with actually just getting a bit of a background on on you three. Uh, So could you describe your journeys to starting up your own independent lab? So we'll kick it off with Claire. Yeah, hi. So really fantastic to be here, Fiona. Um, Really great to talk about all this stuff as well. So for me, it was a really sort of organic process. Um, A lot of people, they kind of apply for a position as a sort of new lab leader, get that position and then have a very clear start date of this is the day that the Durant Lab started. That is not how it has worked for me. So um, I got a Race Against Dementia Fellowship, um, which started in 2019. And this is kind of a weird sort of in-between fellowship where it's not quite a junior fellowship, not quite a senior fellowship, gives you five years of funding to do some quite out of the box science with lots of international connections. Um, And effectively, I was sort of initially treated as a sort of independent fellow within Professor Tara Spires Jones's group here at the University of Edinburgh. Um, But it very quickly got the attention of sort of the bosses here at Edinburgh that it was a five year fellowship, which would mean I technically qualify for tenure track. Um, I qualified for a higher salary than they'd initially put me on. And then from that, um, I've sort of used it as a bargaining chip to allow me to apply for extra grants. And sort of over the last couple of years, I've gone from just a single person working in a lab to suddenly, oh, there's three or four people working for me. And I guess that means I must be a lab leader now. But if I had to say the day that I started as a lab leader, couldn't tell you. Who knows? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's, you mentioned some really interesting things there um, and we'll actually maybe come back to sort of bargaining uh, in a little bit because I think that's something that people don't really talk about very often. Uh, so we will come back to that uh, once we have introduced our other two researchers. So Dane, why don't you give us a, a brief background on how you've ended up where you are? So I think I have a specific date <laughs> to <laughs> completely the opposite. Um, do you celebrate it every year? I do, I do. <laughs> it passed by this year just because I'm getting old. No, seriously, it was, uh. it was um, I, I have done a series of postdocs moving around the country and, and the world uh, until I found myself in a position where I had a career development fellowship at University of Oxford. And during that time, I'd come to give a talk here at Cardiff, where I am now and um got to chatting and they put me onto the fact that there was a number of different fellowships that would uh, lead to group positions here and that would they would like to have me here um 
And actually, one of the ones that they had pointed out was that of the UK Research and Innovations Future Leader Fellowships. And this was a set of fellowships that are cover a lot of the, the bandwidth of the, of the different councils, as, as is the purview of, of the UKRI, and are a four plus three um, set up. So this means that they have you get four, four years worth of funding, and then towards the end of that, you can reapply and, and then get a, a further three years worth of funding. And again, like Claire was saying, because of the duration of that, and, and uh, um, I suppose sort of, yeah, the, the strength of, of a fellowship that long, it would become tenure tracked. And it was one of the the cruxes of getting the award in, in the first place is that the your host institution has to give the backing of that. And obviously that's a that's a pretty huge draw. Uh, as as all of us will know and, and probably most of us listening will know, having that sort of idea of a of a tenure track, which is quite rare in the UK, it was quite uh, alluring. Went in for that, obtained that, came here it's, it is tenure-tracked, but I have moved over to becoming a permanent member of staff at, at Cardiff University because of the fact that uh, there were other UKRI in, uh, people that had arrived here and because of their, their different schools, some had been instantaneously given um, um, a position uh, and some had to work a little bit more for it. But um, I, uh, we moved towards a, a parity, shall we say, across the board. So so we all now have it. So so um, that's how I managed to get mine. So I guess there is a bit of a wishy-washy period in there where I did become a group leader and then became a permanent mm -hmm. member of staff. But um, um, I, I suppose 1st of February is, is when I celebrate. So that's when I got mine. When you celebrate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and Ian, uh, why don't you give us a rundown of how you've ended up in your position? Sure. So um, I'm a, 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 a bit of mix of both of your stories, I guess. So I started, um, I've not moved very far. So I'm, I'm still kind of based in the same department in the same institution that I um, did my postdoc projects in. So I am um, so I did my PhD, came, moved from Imperial. I really haven't moved that far. Moved from Imperial to UCL um, to postdoc. And then there just became kind of a natural progression in my work that I, um, and my funding was importantly, my, my postdoc job was coming to an end. So um, started thinking about how I wanted to take my kind of research forward um, and started applying for fellowships. So applied for um applied for a couple of different fellowships i applied for the alzheimer's research uk uh, fellowship and also applied for the parkinson's uk uh senior fellowship as well um i was in the very fortunate position that i was offered both of them at the same time so which left me with a bit of a quandary as to i did my phd in parkinson's research and then i did my postdoc in alzheimer's research so hence why i kind of applied for both um but anyway um uh, I was very fortunate to be able to kind of talk to both of the, the charities and kind of work out some kind of deal where I'd be able to take on both of these fellowships, split 50-50 between the two, and then recruit a postdoc to be able to split 50-50 between the two as well. So, um, so I guess there was a day when I was, you know, it was the first day of my group, um, but I was sat in the exact same desk that I'd sat for the, the last four or five years for my postdoc. So, um, but it, it's it's been quite a, a weird uh, transition because you know suddenly on day one it was right I was a PI I had a postdoc 
Um, I had a master's student um, starting in a few weeks time. It was like, right, now go. Now you're a PI, get to work. Um, but yeah, so I'm now coming to the end of that um, funding stream. So then starting to apply again when I'm not at that stage yet in within um, my institution, at least. Um, it's quite difficult to secure a permanent position. So you kind of have to bring in a long length of time of kind of independent fellowships before you're kind of um, eligible for that proleptic appointment. But I'm kind of hopefully on that, that track. Interesting. So Dane, you've kind of ticked the pot, the boxes for a tenure track. Yes. So they've kind of said you've got that sort of big fellowship, long fellowship in, you've got money in, sure. you're publishing. Um, and so are you tenured or are you um, in theory, are you, are you permanent position I now? So I'm permanent position now, yeah. You're permanent, so in theory, tenured. Yes, yes. And, and Claire, you are... I'm on the tenure track at the moment, <laughs> so they'll give me a review so in a the, couple of years. You're on the tenure track. So yeah, so I've got goals right. I have to meet within that time frame. one of which is a certain amount of money I have to bring into university, others are publication goals and things as well. And I'm in sort of the weird so position that actually the money I've kind of got sorted, which is usually the harder one to come by. Mm -hmm. And it's just getting those outputs mm -hmm. now that I'm hoping the next couple of years yep. um, will sort of smash. So. <laughs> so you're in the process of ticking the boxes yes. and Ian, you're trying to get onto that opportunity for ticking the boxes? You're yeah, trying to get... I guess uh, it comes, you know, it makes it quite obvious when we, we, we speak to other colleagues like this, like it's quite different mm -hmm. at different universities. So at, yeah. at UCL... Yeah, and that's why it's confusing, right? Yeah. Because people move around. so they're trying to work out what is the best strategy how do i get a permanent position and what does that look like because sometimes you get offered a position but it's tenure track that's still not permanent and exactly. people don't yeah. always realize that um so yeah so you're kind of in that position of you're trying to get you're trying to get the opportunity to start ticking the boxes exactly so it's kind of um my next step would be to get a larger kind of um a larger longer term independent fellowship and off the back of that the university then supports me with a kind of proleptic appointment afterwards so after the the end of that next fellowship i'll go on to a permanent position but it's kind of there's not a um at least from my understanding there's not an an at ucl at least there's not a kind of internal um mm. kind of tenure track uh, career path it's very much you get you bring in two fellowships and then Onward from that interesting because i guess also the money thing there, there's i feel there's a lot of confusion in the field <laughs> of mm. science at the moment around what is enough to bring in in terms of money because there's definitely a lot of um conflicting opinions around whether you need a fellowship and for our listeners a fellowship usually tends to cover your salary as well as some um project costs consumables etc or a big project grant which usually doesn't cover your salary but it's probably more valuable to the university in some ways because a lot of time it covers more consumables but also covers a thing called overheads um, and that is sort of um, things like electricity for the building those kind of costs and um, which a lot of the charity fellowships um, which are there are quite a few of don't usually cover so I guess have you have any of you been told like what to target to really sort of put your energy into like is it project grants or is it fellowships um either is okay I've heard that um obviously things like government funded projects are great because of the overheads um Edinburgh gave me a figure they said a hundred thousand pounds of some sort of grant income per year um is kind of the level that they're looking for so over a sort of 
four or five year tenure track if you bring in one half a million pound grant that should be okay but obviously if you can go over and above that that's good they sort of look at you as a whole so if, it, if you bring in three million pounds of funding and have one fairly average paper they'll probably love you if you bring in yeah, five hundred thousand sure. pounds of funding and have three fantastic papers they'll love you if you bring in 600 but have no papers so it's all it's a little bit cloak and daggers they're trying to be a little bit more explicit yeah exactly um but i think from what i've heard evidence that you're productive in some way they're not asking for nature and science papers they're just wanting you to get decent quality work which is cited which is well done um and also showing evidence that you can bring in money to institution because unfortunately that is how universities work yeah it was interesting i once got told by a very wise professor he said um just get it out there just get the science out there if, if nature or a big paper a big journal are going to hold on to your paper for a year it's not worth it just get out there because now with tools like um google scholar and the search engines like pubmed and, and scopus if you type the terms in you'll find the paper it's it's not like it used to be where you had to get a physical journal through the door so yeah definitely um, so I guess this kind of brings us a little bit onto our next question, um, just some of the things we're talking about, which is how do you negotiate a startup package? Um, and when we talk about a startup package, we're sort of talking about space equipment and the thing that people don't seem to really want to talk about, which is salary. How do you negotiate those things? And can each of you share your own experiences? They're kind of like, for those of you who can't see, we've got people laughing. Smiling. I think people are going back to moments. <laughs> Let's kick off with yeah, there. I would say for me, um, Professor Tara Spires-Jones has been more than an academic sponsor to me. She has been an advocate. And having an advocate on your side who knows the university, who knows the system, who knows where you can and can't push is so much more valuable than any kind of Googling or whatever. You need to get inside the system. Um, you, need a champion. you do need a champion. And she was the one who said to me, you're currently on grade seven this fellowship is big, you should be on grade eight. And then she initiated that process. And then obviously I did all the paperwork and the negotiations, but she was the one to send the original email to HR going, for these reasons, I believe she's been graded wrong on her pay. And then similarly, we had then discussions about going onto the tenure track and she put me in touch with the tenure track committee and I was able then to argue my case. And then they agreed to put me on, but it was very much from someone else going, hang on a second, you're being undervalued for what you've brought into the university here. Um, and I think, to be honest with other stuff, it's been a little bit of a case of, well, if you don't ask, you don't get. So I have, you know, as all women do, I'm quite good at sort of being slightly cheeky and very friendly and asking for things. And it seems less aggressive than, you know, I perhaps I'm very worried about coming across as bossy, but you can say things with a smile going, oh, wouldn't it be lovely? I've noticed that lab is really, you know, empty. So perhaps that'd be a great space <laughs> for me to take over. And actually for me, for me, that's worked quite well in the sense that I'm always take strike a friendly tone, but I'm really not afraid to be a bit cheeky when it matters. And, and people have said no to things before, um, but I, that's how I negotiated getting this lab space. So um, the lab space actually came off the back of just before I went on maternity leave, I got a really big donation from one of my funders to bring in an extra million pounds to the group. So effectively, he'd funded part of my fellowship. Um, he really liked some of the work we were doing. He asked me to write another proposal and then he wanted to fund the highest level of proposal that I wrote. And I basically went to... Is this Mr. Dyson? It is Mr. Dyson. It is. Sir, Mr. Sir Dyson. James Dyson, I would say. Keep buying your fancy hair dryers. <laughs> yeah, like, it's absolutely. funding dementia It really research. is. Um, and he, was so, he visited the lab and he was so excited by some of the work we've been doing with human brain tissue. And he just said, 
so what's your current you know limiting factor and i was like well people and resources he was like well write write me how i could make this go faster um so i i wrote three very cheeky proposals as to what he might like to do and he just got really captivated by it um but the immediate thing i did as soon as i got that money was went straight to my head of department and said so james dyson's just given us a million pounds to start a lab where are you going to let me put it um so and at that point suddenly they were they were listening on that but i i very much came with i'm bringing money what can you provide me in order to house that um and they were absolutely delighted to do that but you do have to ask it, it's not it's not a case of yeah, that they will come and, you and do for you you have to ask um and, it, and it's hard to it's it's really hard to ask um it's it's one of those uncomfortable things right yeah and uh, one of my friends she always says you need to get comfortable feeling uncomfortable mm. and i think that was a good good bit of advice um and i think that's probably a good example of that where you you kind of need to go and ask for those things that yeah rather than waiting for them to come to you that's a great story claire um so now we'll now we'll give dana a chance <laughs> um so tell us your very boring story no, i mean it's, it's effectively <laughs> and i do like the i had a mentor that once told me you don't don't ask don't get and uh it's my grand said i mean that. you've just got to take <laughs> your grand is a very wise woman <laughs> was my grand your maybe grand? No. i feel like spiritually maybe possibly no yeah maybe. um but but um um it's actually my my old supervisor Matt Farah, um, who has been a tremendous supporter of mine, and he's he yeah once sat me down. You don't ask, you don't get, and he was very good at asking and and very good at getting. But um but um he he was one of the the instrumental me reasons I moved back to the UK because he sort of helped me seek out good positions that would help further my career. So um, I'm always sort of very grateful to him. Um, but in coming here, I suppose the reason that the mine is a little bit different and perhaps boring is because I didn't, um, it was during my, because my, the, the way that I moved from one institution to another was on the basis of get, obtaining this fellowship. There wasn't a lot of wiggle room to negotiate anything extra. And I I think maybe perhaps we come back to talking about this later on about things we do differently or things I wish I would have known. Um, the way it was, I was so enamored with getting a position and having this startup package that was part of this very large fellowship that I was getting that I maybe didn't see that there was the possibility of, of, of having some wiggle room, which would have allowed me to go, well, I could have do a little bit, a bit more help here or kind of could you do this for me or, and and I find myself in a position also that I'm I'm very much happily part of the Dementia Research Institute which is a number of centres across the UK that are focused on battling dementia um, uh, and that's situated here um, but the it's both I'm both part of that and also part of Cardiff University when I came in I had a startup package that I brought with me and so there was no negotiation that could be rendered as such it was this is what I've got from my funders this is what I can utilize to start on my package I can hire people from this I, I can use it to buy the equipment so really really what I needed was space, but what about space? so I needed space yeah. so yeah. space was very forthcoming um, like I said resources here um at the dementia research institute is great there's lots of collaborative atmosphere at cardiff as well so there was there is space we already need more space because we're rapidly expanding so i've come in and and my group's moved from being sort of one postdoc to to five people within the space of you know 12 months and um mm -hmm. 
we need we need space so we always need space but um it was you know having a bay and then a whole room for the electrophysiological rig and that was mm-hmm. that was there and so i kind of stated the needs and the necessity but the way i suppose i did it was stating the what i was bringing to the to the institute so there wasn't any electrophysiology in the dementia research institute here at cardiff and so as a result i was saying well i'm bringing these expertise and i'm bringing this capability Mm -hmm. here and so therefore to have that we need this and so you and and so it was like well where can we without it i can't do my work thus where do we put it so i guess i i stated it in terms of the need and desire and what I was bringing and thus selling, selling so points, was, selling points of what Yeah, that was your negotiation. Yes. Guess, you said, well, I'm about to arrive with all this yeah, stuff. Yeah. So, so here's what I need to. It was very much that. Yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, I, I suppose that the, 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 the negotiation wasn't so much for salary. It wasn't so much for, yeah, startup package for equipment. It was much more, how can I find and utilize the space? And they were forthcoming with that. And that was useful. I guess you were coming in at a certain level, whereas Claire had to try and upgrade within the same institute and what about yourself Ian so where are you at with sort of lab space and and that jump from kind of like postdoc to the next level yeah have you had any conversations yeah so I was in that similar position where I've I kind of upgraded from postdoc to to PI as soon as my funding kicked in right so um, so like more like Claire yeah yeah but but it was I think and again this highlights the differences between institutions so at, at UCL um, everything in terms of salaries and stuff is very formulaic. So what happened with me? So I was on, I was on grade seven, and when I I wrote my uh, fellowship application, got the costings through, um, the finance um, division kind of sorted out the costings and 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 put me on grade, uh, put funded, calculated the costs for me to be funded at grade eight. So when my funding kicked in. Um, I was like, okay, right, so I'm on grade eight now. They're like, no, 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 you have to apply to go on to grade eight. And I was like, but I've just, I've brought this funding, right? So surely that's my money. Why can't I access it? So then um, it's kind of understanding the kind of bureaucracy and how things work within your institution. So then I had to kind of apply for my own promotion saying, I've got this funding, the money is sat there. it's mine <laughs> can i have it yeah. please <laughs> um so but again it, it was it's kind of understanding and not really knowing how the system works in 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 your university until you get to that stage where you're kind of interacting with these people and and talking yeah. more extensively to to um and that's where i guess what claire was highlighting a mentor comes in really use you know it becomes a really useful thing is that person who understands the system that you're in and the boxes you need to tick or the paperwork or the people you need to speak to to be able to you know level up I guess is yeah I think that's really important so just touching a bit more on that part of sort of you've you've got your startup package so how do you then go on to build your team what's the kind of first type of person you you sort of look for as in is it is it a PhD student is it a master's student or is it research assistant is it a postdoc like how how did you all approach it and as you know, what do you think is the best way to build that team? Um, I, I was in I was in quite a, a unusual because of this the kind of two fellowships thing. It was kind of day sure. one. First job was to recruit a postdoc, right? So um, it then became you know looking at the work that I planned to do over the you know however many years. It was figuring out what 
kind of skills I needed that person to have, what rather than kind of splitting up parts of the project for the postdoc to do and parts for myself to do, it was how, how am I going to manage these fellowships? How am I going to manage the lab effectively from the beginning? So it, it became quite, I don't know, evident quite quickly that I needed to I needed a very, very specific type of person that had the specific skills um, in, in to do the experiments that I kind of wanted. But again, that kind of stuff I wasn't aware of, of, you know, how do you put a job advert out within the university? Where, where yeah. do you have to send it to, to so that the right people can see it? Um, it's a process as well. Exactly. Sure. Um, and the time scales of these things, I had no idea you know, when, when, when I had to get the grant code into a certain part of HR and when, how long the advert had to be out for, how long I needed to, you know, leave notice between asking somebody to interview and, and actually interviewing them. Yeah, um, and then all of those things. And then you offer the, the person the job and then um, they have to give notice if they're currently in employment, th things like that, which you, you don't really think about if you think, well, I'm my grant starts in say January, therefore I want them to start, but it kind of takes six How long months. Did it take to... you? Yeah. So, well, so I start, so my fellowship kicked in at the beginning of November and, um, and I kind of, because the grant code was there, it just wasn't active yet. I started, mm -hmm. I was like, right, what, how do I do this in kind of late summer, September? Um, I wrote the job advert and then I was told, you know, stand down, you can't do anything until your grants active. So I was kind of waiting for the grant to start um, until I was a able to, because they weren't allowed to advertise the post until, you know, the, the money was being used. So then yeah. by the time, so then I interviewed in January, um, the candidates um, offered the, the person the job, um, then they had to give notice. So they started um, at the beginning of March. Um, and then we had a lockdown. So that was fun. Oh, <laughs> so oh my, my postdoc started... Um, he was here for two weeks and then we went <gasps> into lockdown. So, yeah, oh, it was great timing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, oh my goodness. But it takes longer than I thought it would. Yeah, much to, longer. To put a long okay. story short. Yeah. So, so Claire, what was, you said you now had quite a few people under. Yeah. Uh, you. So, so who, who did you sort of think I need to hire that person first? So again, it grew very organically. So when I first turned up at the university, um, I was kind of in a weird sort of chicken and egg scenario. It's like, well, you have to supervise a PhD student to qualify to supervise a PhD student. So you can't supervise yes. a student yeah. oh until you've supervised yeah. a student. <laughs> so I had this really weird thing where I had to work out how on earth I got around this. Um, and the answer is co-supervision. So I have a yeah. couple of students who I co-supervise with one who I share with Professor Tara Spice-Jones, another who I share with um, Professor Veronique Miron, and they're, they're their primary supervisors, but they do work in my lab. So that gave me a little bit of an in. Um, now I qualify for being a primary supervisor because I have that experience of being a secondary supervisor because I've now done internal vivas. There's a few hoops you have to jump through. Um, yeah. So now I'm very much sort of um, I've got a joint PhD project as co-supervisor with another sort of person of sort of similar level to me. We're both on tenure track, which we're advertising for currently. But students are a great way to start if you're particularly, you know, if you're not yet officially in capacity to hire other people. Co-supervising students is so important for kind of getting your foot in the door for that. Um, and then really, I got um, a couple of grants that all sort of came in at the same time. Um, so I applied for an Alzheimer's Society project grant, which gave me a postdoc. Um, so that was someone who was continuing from Tara's group, who then switched sort of into my group um, to start. 
and then the James Dyson. Quite good, that, yeah. Someone that you it was a sort of a continuation knew the environment. exactly yeah. so it worked really well oh, as a sort of first one. project grant that one and then also the the James Dyson Foundation donation mm-hmm. that um, provides money for a research assistant and a postdoc um, and they both started in January this year but it was it was a long Excellent. road because I got officially notification that I was getting the money uh, November 21 I then went on maternity leave oh, between wow. January 22 to July 22 and um, even though the money was there and now in a bank account HR were very much like oh well, we can't talk to you while you're on maternity leave so you can't write job descriptions because otherwise you'd have to put it as your keeping in touch days and then we'd get in trouble because you're on maternity leave so day one of being back from maternity leave I start submitting all of this but you've got to have pay grade reviews they've got to go through checking all of their internal candidates before you're even allowed to advertise so I advertised yes, and <laughs> I got people interviewed in October and then with notifications and all of that, they started in January. So we're talking about, you know, obviously there's a whole human has been born and everything in between that. But that's, yeah, that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That goes on the CV. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Grew whole human. Yeah. Kept it alive. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Add that to the ref. <laughs> but yeah, it was hard because I just was desperate to hit the ground running when I got back. But it was... And, and I can see their point because, you know, I don't want to be that person who goes on maternity leave and, you know, makes it such that any other woman who wants to go on maternity leave feels they have to work throughout the entire time. But I was like, yeah. can I at least get a job description in? And it's sort of like, well, that kind of goes against the fact we're supposed to leave you alone. So, yeah, it was a little bit tricky with aspects of that. that is yeah. challenging. <laughs> we'll come back to sort of trying to do that sort of personal life work balance and before we move on it'd just be good to hear from Dane and so yeah how did you build your team because you came in with a package that had uh, some money for people so so how did you choose what kind of people you wanted to hire first schadenfreude listening to the other two stories because it's like (laughs) it's it's one of those things where it takes I think this is one of the things we need to let people know when they're making the transition or even just during the learning curve of their scientific career is the, the amount of time things take is just it's <laughs> so mind-numbingly dull that you do oh grants god alone. like grants i think everything is just i mean so it, it was very similar to, to, to you two I, I started in the middle of lockdown right so i've come across and mm. i've thought right i know what i'm going to write for my you know the, the job description how it's going to be because i had already got named postdocs on sorry unnamed postdocs on the on the award so i know what the positions are going to entail how long they're going to last you know you exactly know oh yeah i can see it all happening yeah. laid out in front of me like a roadmap it was great oh yeah it was <laughs> going to be fine perfectly. but at least i knew exactly that there were there were two postdocs associated with my um with my post and with the fellowship itself so i came in nothing was moving as quickly as you would expect during lockdown because it just wasn't obviously uh and getting things in getting it submitted getting it approved getting the clearance get interviewing people possibly finding out that that person then can't move across having to reapply re-advertise all these things meant i didn't get anybody in post until um november of that same year so um yeah it took basically uh, almost almost a year before i got anybody in post so it sounds like it was very similar to the other two what i actually ended up doing in the end because um we were trying to get everything set up like buying and tendering a a rig electrophysiological rig to make the recordings um 
because it's such a large piece of equipment, you have to go through tender process. Tender process takes quite a long time in itself, so yes. I actually couldn't get the rig in as quickly as I wanted to. Um, For people who don't know, tender is where you have to basically uh, look across. Even if you want sure. to go to a company and you know that you need a specific bit of equipment, they don't allow you to go straight to that company. You have to look across all companies yeah. to see yeah. Ex- yeah. the cheapest one. It's basically but to protect even... them from you and your mate setting that's up an electrophysiology company that's the one. and sending and a bit it, of plastic yeah. and getting 100 k Stop nepotism, effectively. So it's kind yeah. of, uh, it's a really good idea. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a good yeah. plan. It's just that it can... It, some it, of the, yeah, and some of the hoops that you may have to go through <laughs> may seem sometimes feel... Yeah. more arduous than they ought to be. However, doing that process meant that I... Um, anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> what I actually ended up doing meant that there was a whole year of funding for a post that had gone unspent. So what I actually did was carve off that year and create a new post. Um, and um, okay. somebody said it earlier, but it sounds like Taken. I needed somebody with a particular set of skills to come into the to the lab, right? <laughs> and so I, I, I carved it off and I was supposed to have a behavioral postdoc, somebody who looked at, you know, um, animal work and looked at the behavioral um, uh, effects of, of Parkinson's um, mutations and then somebody to look at how the neurons communicate with one another. But what I was missing was a molecular sector, which I always wanted to have, but couldn't really work it in. But I turned it to an advantage by carving it off and having somebody in the lab that was molecular. So we, we got that person in and she was absolutely fantastic. Um, she's uh, She got everything working, we got lots of molecular work in the lab and then we added two other fantastic postdocs to the team. And so it was getting them out there was hard, getting them in and I'm slowly learning the process and now I've got sort of, I did it the opposite way around. So I suppose I got postdocs before PhDs. I've now got... Th- three PhDs on the way um actually we're interviewing for one in two days time um so um and then that will that will be the Fantastic. team will be um, a set of five people but we went postdoc and then PhD and so um just because of the way it worked because the package was already existed uh, and so it's kind of yeah so that was kind of yeah yeah otherwise I'm, I mean I thought it would be because of the what what we were driving towards as well. We I think it would require a skilled set of hands um, in in the first instance to get everything running smoothly, and and that's what's happened. So that's 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 yeah. good. I think it was the for me worked worked slightly better. Um, yeah. Excellent. So just to go back actually to what Claire was kind of talking around maternity leave is um, actually all of you have young families. So how have you managed to have a young family and start up a lab? And I feel like Claire's smiling there, <laughs> smiling there. So we'll go back to her because obviously it's kind of different for some, you know, Claire because she's had the baby and had maternity leave versus Dane and Ian who I guess had paternity leave, but we'll come on to that. So, Claire, do you want to talk first? How you have you? How how did you manage to start a lab and create a whole new human? I mean, I feel manage is a strong word. Survive, I think, is about <laughs> is where I can go. Um, yeah, but for me, I think um, I guess as as the only person who's sort of been pregnant on this panel and sort of you know, I was very fortunate and I had a really easy pregnancy. I was so lucky with that because I know some women are just absolutely incapacitated yeah. with morning sickness get really uncomfortable so actually in the lab apart from having to avoid certain chemicals and things I was able to be me pretty much up until like maybe two three weeks before the baby was born so that was That's amazing um, but I was so, so basically you need a bit of luck you need a lot of luck and I think I really don't <laughs> underestimate that because I was so lucky and I have so many friends who from pretty much day one were throwing up for you know five months 
And I can't understand how on earth these women can cope in a lab and hats off to them. You know, and I don't want to pretend that I was enduring that and I was, you know, I was lucky, I felt fine. So for me, that was that was really hugely helpful because it meant actually my time off, off, off was only the six months that I took for maternity leave. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you include feeling terrible, that could potentially extend that as well. Um, so it was very, very scary telling people that I was pregnant because obviously I have funders who, you know, I've just been given a load yeah. of money by people and I go, all oh, right, I'm off for a little bit. Um, but communication was absolutely key. Communication with my lab, communication with the funders um, and basically just sort of saying, look, I believe that I can cope with this and I'm going to prove to you that I can. It's a bit sad that in 22, you sort of still feel that pressure on you to be like, don't worry, Absolutely. I'm not going to run off and just, you know, become a mum and leave science. But you feel those eyes Let, Let's on face you. it, six months. Yeah. Six, six months. I've had sequencing that's taken longer. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean... I've had animals trying to get into the lab that have taken longer than that. Absolutely. I think people... I think sometimes people are still looking at, you know, maternity leave as a huge amount of time yeah. off. But in science, we've just talked about how long... <laughs> Absolutely. Just about to say, it was quite interesting. In the space of time yeah. it took me to, to recruit one yeah. into, who already existed in yeah. the world. Yeah. So I think there's a perception that has to change. There is, yeah. And obviously, Sorry, people yeah. are entitled to take up to a year. And, I, you know, it's weird yeah. that I don't know if, if, you know, Dane and Ian feel the same thing. But for me, I feel quite a strong sense of responsibility towards other women in science who want to start a family. And I feel quite a strong sense of responsibility to A, show that you can do it, but B, not make it such that people feel they have to do it my way. And I know that six months for a lot of people is a very short maternity leave. It worked for me and I absolutely want to support other people who want to take longer time. Again, some people don't feel well in pregnancy. I did, I was able to work, but I'm very cautious that I don't want to set expectations on other women just because of how things worked for me and and sometimes people have complications after they've Hugely, given birth health yeah. complications they need to recover um, from and, and also sometimes sadly children yeah. need you know if you have a premature baby yeah. you need to dedicate more time absolutely um, to them. um and i will so say can i ask yeah. you why six months what was it did you just feel yeah. that you really wanted to get back or, yeah like, for me what was um, it then sort of i it was a balance for me because i always knew that i wanted to come back and i wanted to be yeah. back into the science um, for me, six months felt the right balance of my baby would be old enough that they'd be, you know, they'd have had a lot of time to bond with me, but also then old enough to kind of benefit from nursery. So I don't feel like I was dropping off, you know, a complete baby with strangers that yeah. would felt, feel quite strange. But equally, you know, there was some science around it. I read that separation anxiety sort of starts at nine months. So if you can get them into nursery before then, <laughs> you actually have an easier time of moving that around. Um, so for me, it was really sort of a balance of, okay, I want to have enough time with my son, but also don't want to be out of the lab for such a huge time because things move on so fast. They move on really fast. They do. Um, but that was very much my own. Science is both fast yeah. and slow. Yeah. Um, but I think that was very much my own pressure on myself. I didn't have that pressure from anyone else. The pressure all came from my perception of what other people would be thinking or my own pressure on myself. Um, 
but you know i i did That's try good. and do some work on maternity leave and it was <laughs> not gonna happen like i had such grand plans i i was going to learn to code on maternity leave because babies are easy oh, right wow. babies are easy <laughs> yeah. Day, right? yeah i mean oh, wow. um so i was writing a review with some colleagues and honestly it was the most garbage piece of writing i've ever put out i read it back like three weeks later after sending the first draft and they sent some really polite comments back of like, oh, maybe we need to revise. And then I'd had some sleep. It's like, maybe you need to sleep some <laughs> yeah, more. Yeah, I had some sleep, <laughs> reread it. And there was like, oh, I was wow. repeating like the same sentence yeah. multiple times. So I was like, right. Um, oh. So, I mean, you get through it and you do it, but I think massively lower your expectations about what you'll achieve on maternity leave. It's amazing to keep a human alive. Um, and then actually once I was Absolutely. back, Including yourself yeah, as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but once I was back, having him in nursery, you know, I could actually have time to think out work because I wasn't constantly sort of working out what I was going to have to do with him. But my working days are very strict now in terms of I can't be in work mm-hmm. before 8.30. I can't leave work after 4.45. And then it's very much balancing around him and then catching up in the evening. So it's, it's, it's flexible. Academia is great for that. But I can't stay if a you know brain case lasts longer. Someone else will have to pick that up, and it's just it's a different balance yeah. for sure. Do you think you're more productive though because you have those hours? Yes and no. Um, I was saying okay. as I was sort of alluding to <laughs> when we were chatting before, um, the month of January has been just an absolute you know mental case of disease after disease after disease of viruses and there hasn't been oh, a single week since christmas in the family not in the oh lab. yeah you know um there hasn't been a week since christmas where i haven't had at least one day disrupted by either him being ill me being ill him having his vaccinations and there's something and it you do just have to be kind to yourself and go you know what yep i have to skip out on the lab today because i've got to go pick up my son but you catch up and you think and yeah you're just running really fast to stay in the same place some days but when you look on the scale of sort of weeks to months you realize you are making progress that's a good way to look at it so dean um you also have young kids um and you were saying actually you needed a coffee <laughs> for a, this podcast had a because small boy you had to... <laughs> climb on top of my head in the middle of the night um yeah which is just now sort of regular <laughs> it's amazing what you now think of as being normal <laughs> Um, when you become <laughs> when you become a parent, um, you're just like, oh, okay, that's cool. My daughter <laughs> used to come into the room and sort of open my eyes for me. That was yeah, just daddy, and just open oh, my eyes. That's and I was nice like, of her. Oh my god, um, it was it was. I don't know if nice was ever the word. It was very jarring. I was awake very rapidly afterwards. Um, yeah, so she, yeah, she knew what she's doing. Yeah, and I've got a six year old and eight year old. My my two came during my postdoctoral years, I suppose. Um, I very much, like Claire, started working in a way that um, became regimented, more fixed. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but when it was, when it comes to patching, you can when you've got a good patching day, you should stay at the rig and you should just stay there and patch away until you, so you can get all of the data in. Um, and so I used to when I was young and carefree, used to patch away for hours on end and just be there and just, it wouldn't matter, right? Now I got to get home for stories and, and catch ups and all the things I really want to do, which is uh, obviously fine, but it meant that I have to compress and condense and work more efficiently. I, I found I was working much more efficiently, um, but there it, 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 it is it does depend on what it is and obviously with meetings and, st- and such it, it affects your day and your plans and, and so perhaps 
you can rattle through all of the experiments in a week that you might want to do again, but you could do those experiments that you did want to do very efficiently and well, if that makes sense. So you, you, it's, it's organization was, was, mm. was, was part of it. It might not seem like it when you're, yeah, it might not seem like it when you're, when you've got kids because organization seems to be chaotic, but, um, but it, it was very much like that underneath. It was all sort of organized and well, well thought out, I think. But, um, uh, it, it's, it's, I, I too am very much like this is how I operate and this is how I operated. It's going to be very different from family to family and person to person. So I, I, I totally agree with that. I think it's um, an incredible thing to do to create a, to create a miniature human. I think you've done spectacularly well to come back after six months and only repeat yourself in, like three times. I remember being out and about and in my slippers when I was in Canada and I was just like, what am I doing here? I don't really remember. Yeah, this is weird. Um, Who am I? But yeah, so it's it. Where but am it's. I? Uh, I, I always say it's you could you could probably sacrifice the science, or you could sacrifice the kids, or you could sacrifice your sleep. And this is why I'm drinking coffee. So I've yeah mm. yeah that's definitely so the, the sleep was the one that went today, and and so Ian, you also have a small children. Yeah, so I've got a well nearly three year old and a four year old. So uh yes my eldest came when i was towards the end of my uh postdoc project and i remember we were doing sleep training whilst i was trying to write my fellowship applications so that was particularly fun um kind of not getting just means that you can write all night right well (laughs) yeah well (laughs) not 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 getting more than kind of 45 minutes of unbroken sleep kind of (laughs) 45 minutes and then up again um all night and then going to work and trying to figure out you know costings for your grant that you've oh. that was fun but anyway um so yeah and then um my youngest came so I started um kind of I started my fellowship at the end of 2019 and then um so one of the I was talking earlier about recruiting my postdoc and one of the reasons I wanted to kind of get him in the lab as soon as I could was because uh, baby number two was on her way so um my this post- time you knew what was coming exactly so I kind of <laughs> could prepare myself and figure out what how was how I was going to do this and I kind of knew the ins and outs of how paternity leave worked at the university and um I didn't consider that there might be a global pandemic to deal with, with having a newborn at home. So that's a different podcast. But um, yeah. yeah, so so uh, my postdoc started at the beginning of March. And then so he was with us for kind of a week and a half. And then I went on paternity leave um, and then lockdown happened. So um, <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 it was tricky. Let's just give a brief shout out to your postdoc. Exactly, who exactly. Managed and he a did really crazy fantastically time. well because my, my thought was, you know, I'll go on pat leave. He can be in the lab. He can kind of get settled in, um, kind of meet and everyone. And you'll be back in a couple of and then, weeks. Yeah, exactly. Then yeah. we can get going with experiments. Um, but he did fantastically well. And I mean, in, in, in lockdown, I was dealing with a, a newborn at home um, and a toddler who couldn't, wasn't allowed to go to nursery anymore um, whilst whilst trying to. Um, and then we, we wrote a review, which I think most people <laughs> did in lockdown or at least tried to. Um, but um, but yeah, in terms of kind of how my work life balance works now, I guess I'd I'd agree with both of you guys that that running very fast to stay still definitely resonates. That's basically my life at the moment. Um, yeah. That again, I think I'm 
since having kids it's made me a lot more efficient at work um because because you know the hours that you're in you know um and you know you have to leave at a certain time to to make school pick up or, or nursery pick up um so it does make you incredibly efficient in the hours that you are in and i would kind of raise i definitely think that you know being a parent um and being a scientist they both make you better at the other role as well even though some of the time i definitely think you know you have a really bad week and you think you know you're i'm really i'm being a really bad dad this week or i'm being a really bad scientist oh. this week i'm not you know i'm not getting that data done but you know you really i do kind of you have to take stock sometimes and think, you know, it, each of the my roles within my life makes me better at the other one. And I kind of, you do have to remind yourself of that regularly, I think. But um, And think of it, like, once they're old enough, you can just get them to work in the lab for free. Yeah. So, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> just make your own lab. <laughs> just make your own lab. You don't need to hire. No project nice. grant, don't worry. Just make a human. <laughs> I like yeah, that idea some rules of, again, of, of but, um, but, uh, <laughs> teaching you the other way. I, I have certainly found that when I've yeah, it's a really nice kids, idea. You, you might have to try and if they've asked you a question, you have to repeat it, and if they don't understand the explanation, you have to find a new way of doing it. That that is actually quite useful for when you're trying to convey information to somebody who's maybe outside your field. Definitely. Yeah. You're using your children. Well, they they for are. For they get it far better than some of my <laughs> peers. No, I'm joking. So, so, um, so it's it's quite good because you have to learn how to you know one subject but say it in multiple different ways so that somebody can maybe understand it a little bit better whether that be a member of public or indeed fellow scientists which you know or outside of your remit of work it's it's quite useful so actually it's yeah I, I compliment my kids all the time that's it yeah thanks that's a great point as well I love that, that. yeah thanks thanks kids no. thanks thanks kids <laughs> And I would say, I think it's getting so much better in terms of, you know, you talk to people who had kids 10 years ago and people almost just didn't mention their kids or people tried to hide it on their CVs and things like that. And one thing I've really noticed is that once you have a kid, there's this whole secret club of amazing people who then you have something to talk about. Who are like, oh, you're knackered too. That's fantastic. We can talk about this. And there's this, this amazing club of people who are just all really willing to help each other out and discuss different things who really great. understand you at a different level. And it's been one of the most sort of, you know, not to get too philosophical, sort of, it's really opened my eyes into like how much love there is in the world. Because you know how much love you have for your Aww. son. And then you look around and you go, every single parent feels that way about their kid. And you just see like this whole different thing. And you just look at your colleagues who have kids in a very different way. And there's just something I find... It's quite nice when you sort of think of, you know, the work we're doing, we're sort of trying to build a better future. And then you can actually imagine that future, particularly when you have kids or your friends have kids and things. And I find that quite motivating. That's so lovely, Claire. You're so inspirational. That's just, did not expect this podcast to get so emotional. That's absolutely lovely. It's the sleep deprivation. Nice it does things to you. So. <laughs> oh, no, that, I think that's a really lovely, lovely um observation actually it's really lovely um so what one thing I was going to ask actually is you know through all of this through having kids and setting up your own lab and this huge journey you've all been on what have you found to be helpful like are there any resources or um things that you've sort of really found helpful that we can help point other people towards any podcasts or online resources that anyone um sort of human resources went to to find help 
Yeah. Men, no, specifically. Human resources, like, HR. Mentors. I think you should talk to, yeah. not a literal and HR. No. Oh, not literal HR, <laughs> like actual people. I was no, like, because HR actually could maybe help uh, you with your contract and your pay. Guys, this is so deep. Didn't I know. This, your fellow <laughs> man. Right. Human, woman. your fellow man. Or, or anybody else. Exactly. <laughs> or women, yeah, sorry. Many. I meant man in the sense of... <laughs> no, I think it's really yeah, good. I don't think you should ever have um, sort of one mentor. I think having multiple people you can turn to is really useful. Yeah. I've talked to and turned to many people who have, you know, been there and done it, right? And they are at various stages of their career as well. They've mm-hmm. either... Yeah, it's good. That's what this podcast is. It's good. We are the resource. We are the resource. We are the resource. That would be a good name for a podcast. Um, um, but I find that people have got, you know, really great insight. Those common threads that they all say, you know that that's really important. That's always really good to have. A lot of people, at the beginning, I, I, I knew it was going to take a while. I've done a few post postdocs and I knew it might take a little time to get set up. And I'd done a tender process, for instance, once before. So I knew it was going to take a little bit of time. So I had in my head sort of a, a period of the time where it would be sort of a lag period at the beginning in my head and then I was like but I'll have this bit done by this stage and I'll have this bit done by this stage and I said this to one or two um, um, to, uh, one or two mentors I have a, a mentor here um, Professor Anne Rosa who's fantastic as well uh, and she was just like no <laughs> no just 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 no. maybe oh, no. walk that back a little bit I'm not sure that that's going to be she was really lovely about it but in hindsight I went back to her and was like yeah you were right this, this that was unrealistic and she was like yeah oh. I didn't want to tell you at the time but yeah but she they've given me the indication oh. about certain aspects about you know like as we were saying before you don't ask you don't get negotiation skills about who you might want as your first person in the lab. There's often that thing that we talk about where you have different people in the lab that might be good at different things or have different specialities. And, and yeah. they've, they've each given me fantastic feedback that I think is sort of far more valuable, especially because I can interact with them and be like, oh, what do you mean by that? Let's have a little bit more about this, this area of what you meant. And I think that you just can't undervalue it at all. Just experience, I suppose. I think going back to mentorship, it's sometimes people feel a bit stuck in how to find a mentor. And my bit of advice is one, when you take that first PhD um, or postdoc position is make it really clear in that interview that you're looking for a mentor and and also go to the lab that you are potentially going to go into and ask the people who are there, preferably with the PI not there, um, how is the lab run? Is it a supportive environment? And make sure that it, that is a good environment for you to be going into. And then there's also a lot of mentorship schemes out there. The one that springs to my mind at the moment is Alzheimer's Research UK mentorship scheme, which has only been fully up and running, I think, about a year and a year and a year and a bit now. Um, and that's a really excellent one because you can actually specify what kind of mentorship you're looking for. Are you looking for someone who's had kids? Are you looking for someone who is more senior? Um, or are you looking for someone who's just managed to get their first fellowship and you want to learn from them and how they did that? Definitely. I do also think, sorry, I also just really quickly think that you, it's, it's also important to, you don't have to formally find a mentor. Just maybe somebody yes, who... Yes, sometimes they just happen organically. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's also, I just wanted to, to mention yeah, that. Yeah, just to watch out for that yeah, as well. Just, Absolutely. Yeah. So Claire and Ian, is there any sort of resources you can think Absolutely. of? Absolutely. So I would say we've talked quite a lot about sort of scientific mentors and sort of people maybe higher up the chain than you. The biggest resource I've ever found is people. People just at every level. So 
you know, HR, finance, um, the people who run reception on my building, people in stores, the people in the animal units, I've made a real effort to personally get to know all of them. The procurement team, for example, you know, have a phone call or a Zoom call where you discuss, right, this is what my plans are for the next X, Y, Z. This is probably what I'm going to need. You know, I'm tapping into your expertise here. How can you help me navigate? And then I've just found people are so willing to help and there's such a wealth of expertise. Like our procurement guys have been fantastic, you know, huge forms from the University of Edinburgh to order equipment over certain values. And I just, you know, I set up a call with them and they just had it live and they were just filling it in as I was talking to them, you know, telling me how to do everything. And you just have to make use of these people. And I think there can be a little bit in academia, this sort of snobbery of like, oh, well, all the people, admin people are here to kind of stop us doing our jobs and it makes it really difficult. But if you find the right people, they can make your life so much easier. And, you know, hats off to the finance team, the procurement team and stuff we have here in Edinburgh, because honestly, they do a really good job with hard stuff. And, you know, it's who we, you know. We also have um, research and innovation services is what we call it here. But all universities will probably have some form of that. These are people who can help you find grants that are coming up. They'll read your, your grant proposals, even though they might not be in your scientific area. But it's great to have someone who isn't in your area read through it to make sure that it can be understood. Um, you know, there, you're right. There's so many resources within the university. And I think that's where networking really comes yeah. in. And actually just being nice and, and asking the person, you know, in the coffee room, like, how are you? And getting well, absolutely. to know people. I mean, simple um, things like, you know, I personally go and collect a lot of my deliveries from stores because case in point, we had this massive delivery of this huge piece of equipment for a microscope that arrived. You know, it's massive. It's filling up their entire stores thing. Normally they'd get a bit annoyed about this, but they know me, they've got my number, they can text me and we can chat about it yeah. and we can sort it out together. But if you kind of have this sort of wall up between you and the people who make the university work, yeah, you're probably going to find that they go, right, if you don't move this by tomorrow, we're going to escalate this or we're going to put it in the bin. But if they know you, there's a little bit more of that kind of yeah, leeway. Yeah, a bit leeway. Yeah. And I yeah. think, you know, human contact, it makes yeah. such a difference. It's important. Um, it does. That's great. That's such an important message, such an important bit of advice as well. So I think uh, moving on, I think it'd be great to sort of have a bit of a summary. Um, and one of the things I'd love to ask you all is what's your single biggest challenge been? Um, in setting up your own lab, if there's one thing you think, oh my goodness, that was the one thing that was the biggest barrier that I had to overcome, what would it be? And we'll start with Ian. What was your biggest barrier, your biggest challenge? I think, um, I think just the timing of things. COVID <laughs> was not was not the best, but I think you know that kind of getting rid of that from my head. So um, I think a lot of it has been just learning. Um, learning about how the ins and outs of the university how, how it works so a lot of the things you, you you don't know how you know the finance division works because you've you've never had to you know write your own you know you may have written sort of small inter for me anyway i wrote kind of small internal grants but i'd never kind of written anything that big that needs to be improved internally and then kind of escalated to the right people um and again um um going on what claire was saying about getting to know people so you know find finding that person in finance that you know that you can get a relationship with and be able to message them and just be like right this is what i need to do um, uh, who do i need to contact for that i you know and, and who aren't going to yell at you when you find a grant like a few days before it's due and you're like i really want to put exactly, money exactly. For this. can i do this is this a possibility <laughs> this. can you say yes <laughs> um but yeah i kind of like learning how 
things work as a PI. And I, and I think one of the things that comes with is the amount of time um, we've talked a lot about time so far, but the, the amount of time <laughs> in your, in my day that isn't just doing science. So a lot of, um, you know, before when you're a postdoc, you can get completely absorbed in what you're doing and, and yeah. all of your working day is about um, the experiments, but then it comes to being a PI and then it, it's about, oh, I, I need to kind of sort out the colonies of my mice or I need to arrange for that bit of kit to be serviced or I need to review some CVs. There's always other things to pull you away. Um, but I didn't really appreciate how much time your priorities change exactly i guess exactly and as a postdoc there and as a phd student especially you're you're allowed to sort of immerse yourself in the science experiments and it's so lovely um but yeah sad when the paperwork gets in the way i actually think it's one of the things that we haven't learned from covid is that if you remove all this we call it red tape but what it actually is is an admin that we have to do as sort of as you become a more senior scientist if you take that away you get so much more science done but i wish that that was a lesson that we'd kept from covid but oh well anyway and dean what was your biggest challenge I if you could pinpoint like one thing i think it might have been that that sort of transition to from doing science and reading papers um and then eventually writing fellowships such that it was mm-hmm. i think then to being more of a managing grants and people and um making sure that write-ups are in on time milestones and and, and doing far less mm. of the the sciencey things, things. That, the fun things the um, reasons you became a yeah, scientist exactly oh, i mean i still get to do the you know the cool sit down chats about where we're going to take data next but then immediately yeah. oh, what that follows is then how do we get the money in for funding that how where do we go let's start writing up this whole report but then all of the administrative that comes with that. Can I just do it? No, I need to go through this and jump this hoop and do this step and you get all these other people. To yeah. And so yeah. I suppose, I, I, I mean, I, I talked to people before transitioning and both people that were there doing that role and then people who are about to make that transition and the level of um, knowledge about how much that switched was so poor um because i think there were people like oh no i know how much admin there is involved in it and i'll just do this and that and the other and then people that are at the other end of the spectrum are like no you have no idea again not to take it back to 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 parenting too much but it's like when people tell you oh you're gonna have have sleep deprivation and there's no way of explaining how much sleep yeah (laughs) Yeah. that's always what you get and it's just like no you you just don't know. And I don't know how to explain it to you. You just, it's just on another level. It's very much the same. It's just on another level. Yes, you do lots of admin work when you're sort of moving through towards more senior levels of postdoc, but it's just not that. You're now doing that for four or five people because you've got people within your lab. So you're looking after you and your lab and then looking up and helping out with the department. So it's just... Yeah, could you start? That's one thing we haven't really spoken about is as you progress, you also take on sort of more senior roles, you sit on committees. It's how it helps you progress as well, because that's another box you need to tick is that you're contributing to your school, to your department, to your university as well. So So there's admin that comes with that as well. That's been the biggest challenge, I suppose, is more it's, it's been the transition to, to what it's what it is. Um, and and that's fine. But it was it was uh, jarring, I suppose. Claire, is it a similar Yeah, I think for me it's very similar. And I think because I'm probably slightly earlier in the transition than both Dane and Ian, I think at the moment I've got that 
feeling where I just have all the hats on. So I have everything. At the moment, I'm the person who is lugging incubators around to move them into position, but also the person writing grants. And I'm the person who's doing the interviews for new jobs, but also the person who's doing the dissection of the brain case that's coming in on Monday. So it's it's very much I'm all levels at the moment and trying to kind of train people up to get to the point where I can pass on some tasks to them and then I take over yeah. more others. Um, it's a very much in that transition phase. Um, and yeah, some days are just, you are really jumping from one end of the spectrum to the other. And it's quite hard to kind of keep yourself balanced when you go from scrubbing the floors to then sitting on a grant review board. It's, it's, quite, a, it's quite a different um, kind Keeps of Keeps you humble. It certainly yeah. does. And it's great because I have a pulse on what's going on in the lab, but it does mean that that's I'm true. basically doing that four people's jobs, um, you know, in terms of yeah. I'm a PI, I'm a postdoc, I'm a research assistant, um, all of those things at the moment while we're getting set up. Um, Absolutely. But the, the team around me is fantastic. Um, really enjoying setting that up. And that's great. Yeah, definitely. That's really good. Is And looking back, is there anything that you would be that you'd do differently? And if there was, like, what would it be? If, if there was anything you thought, I wish I could go back and change that. I think, to be honest, the power of hindsight is is a fantastic one i'd say apply to anything you're remotely eligible for as early as possible just go for it getting money into the lab as soon as you have people things happen twice as fast that's a really interesting thing and i (laughs) I didn't really consider it when i got my fellowship i was like oh i've got five years i don't need to think about money for a while so i probably delayed Mm -hmm. the process of actually applying for more money until a couple of years in and actually i think almost day one send some grant applications because if you can double your team you can double your output and I think that's a really good use of your time but also knowing when to kind of stop and make sure you're back in the lab as well it's all about the balance I mean for me I felt like I had a sort of triple whammy of sort of disruptions I moved from Cambridge to Edinburgh to do my fellowship so moving labs three months after that we had we had yeah (laughs) we had Covid hit so then lockdown of Covid and then I had a baby and so it was all lovely sequential like every year or so having one massive hammer to your productivity um so i think just being really resilient as well and kind of being kind to yourself in that um and that know that everyone of our career stage has gone through that and you just you know you've got to remember that you know you're not comparing yourself having had a covid pandemic with everyone else not having a pandemic we've all had it so you just you know just know that it's disrupted people in different ways so absolutely and ian is there anything that you'd change looking back if you could do something different i was going to say exactly the same thing as claire to be honest one of those things is when you 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 have this grant and then you're like right so i'm i'm sorted now i can just get on with it but a lot of some of the grants that i was looking at um, you need to be in contract for a certain period of time to be eligible mm-hmm. and you're, yes. you've got the longest contract ahead of you when you start your fellowship. So it sounds counterintuitive to as soon as you get going, start applying again because you just come out of that writing phase. You've just come through it. So it then makes sense to start sending off these applications as early as, as you can. And it can take a year, 18 months before you, you know, that money can exactly. be confirmed exactly. or not. And so if you have a three-year fellowship, that's kind of over, you know, that's halfway mm. into it potentially. So absolutely. And Dane, is there anything different or do you kind of agree with uh, Claire and Ian on that one? I think um, what it comes almost full circle back, back to the beginning in that I would have negotiated more specifically the, what I mean, uh, I would, I would have talked more. I would have talked more to people in the institution to find out 
the needs and musts and how to so that I could have maybe got mm -hmm. things going slightly faster than I did. I'm still hung up on the, the idea of, of that timeline thing that I had in my head. And I'm always thinking, could I have got that done faster if I had done X, Y, and Z? And I suppose the only thing I could have done would be to to interact even more with this institution that was, you know, far away in another country, um, um, such yeah. as it was. But uh, it, it would have been good to be infusing myself of, of the how the administrative and the bureaucracy levels work in the whole new institution so that I could maybe get it up to speed a little bit faster because I was learning whilst doing but perhaps that's a, a hindsight thing in all our cases it's a 2020 oh, it's great we can yeah. think back but I'm not sure if you would have we would have ever executed you wouldn't have learned the same yeah. lessons no. though so, I don't, so yeah. that's quite good nobody has anything massive though that's pretty good. That's and so, not saying we, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we've definitely not done it completely right, though. I'm, yeah. I'm Is there a right way, myself. though? Yeah. Who knows? I think you've all done incredible, absolutely incredible, especially that you think all the sort of challenges that there's been over the last few years. Um, and I guess that sort of brings me to my last question, which is a nice one, I think, which is what's been your favourite thing about setting up your own labs? Mm. Oh, many lots of thinking faces. Ian, on you go. One of the big things for me was seeing um, people within my group present the work at conferences. So it's something, you know, when, when it's your own work and you kind of put the talk together and you, or you put the poster together, but seeing kind of your initial seed idea that you got the money for, seeing members of your group kind of take that project forward, present it and get feedback on it. That was one of those moments where you kind of big, oh, proud, smiley lovely, face. Ian. <laughs> You're like proud PI. Exactly, exactly. That's really nice. That's a really good one. Claire, you were going yeah, to say. Yeah, it's, it's all about the people for me in terms of, um, I feel really lucky with the people I've been able to crew. I've got the smartest, most driven, nicest people you could hope to meet. And, you know, and I use those three words as I, I have a criteria. Whenever I recruit, they have to be all three. They can't lose any one of them. You can have the smartest and most driven person in the world, but if they're not particularly pleasant to work with or not honest or not have good, good integrity, they're not on my team. And likewise, you know. That's what sets the lab culture. It really and does. You need a and nice, I think lab culture, positive lab culture is really important. And any type of individual can do well in science. But I do think there are core characteristics that you have to be. And when I say driven, I mean curious. You want to answer questions about research. You know, you don't have to want to be a PI, but you want to come and do a good job every day. That's what I class as driven. Smart, you know, I don't necessarily mean book smart. I mean, can you fix a piece of equipment? Can you work out what controls are good in an experiment? Can you assess what you're going to do in day and how you prioritize it? And obviously, you know, for some roles, can you think of a, an amazing idea that we can then go and test? Um, and then nice, can you work with people? You know, are you the kind of person that's going to be really honest in your interpretation of data? Are you going to be collegiate and things? And if you lack any one of those three, you're not coming on my team is basically the way. And, and because I've been quite rigorous with that, I feel like I just have the best colleagues. I just have people who are just fascinating and just so much fun to be around. And they teach me stuff every day and I absolutely love that. And it just gives me such a buzz to know that we're all working towards something together um, as part of a team, which I adore, so. That's fantastic. I love that as well. I can't wait for Claire's podcast series, which is going to be on inspirational talks <laughs> as a dementia researcher. Um, and lastly, Dane, what's your what's been your favourite thing about setting up your lab? 
I think it's the people as well. I I, I can't look yeah. beyond that. It's seeing the enthusiasm that they can bring and and the energy that they can bring to to the work that perhaps you've envisaged. But you can also see the evolution of it as they work on it, which is it's quite gratifying to see your story progress and somebody taking it on and sort of shape, helping to shape it. It's it's this to and fro that you can have in the lab which again it's really important to have a good lab lab culture it's good to have people that you can work with right and so you know i can me and my team and i can get go down rabbit holes of talking about and discussing things and then you look at your watch and it's been an hour and a half and you're like okay right so we have to end this lab <laughs> meeting soon but it's 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 because you're having such joy in talking about the science and getting it up to speed and getting it really working and uh, at the end of the day that's that's what we want to do is get that science done find the best ways of doing it and the best ways of doing it is through a synergistic effort so you can do that by recruiting the right people and as i'm seeing the lab build and evolve i'm sort of seeing the fruition of that it's it's like ian said seeing 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 the work presented but i suppose the, the bit that I see is, is slightly to the slightly to the left is is that I can see them doing the executing the work and coming back and saying, "Oh, this thing worked, and I did this extra thing." And so I'm like, "Yeah, I knew it was going to work. We discussed it, and you were doing it. So you're and you're great at it. So this is great. And then that extra thing you did, that was fantastic. And so let's how do we work that out? Let's sit down, let's mold that over, and how is that going to help us to progress it? So it's just it's enjoyable to be able to have people that are enthusiastic enthusiastic about that science who have the drive to help people because we're working on parkinson's and we really want to help people and and really get towards that goal of of of, you know finding therapeutics and it's just great to have a team that sort of loves doing that and so it's a joy it's a joy to come in it's a joy oh this has been so fantastic and we were saying before the podcast started recording i was so excited about hosting this one because I'm at this weird in-between career stage where I've got a junior fellowship and I kind of like like yeah I'm, I'm sort of what Claire was describing at the beginning of this sort of independent fellow but in someone's lab and that transition like how do you transition and I just want to say thank you so much for all your input today it's been so great to talk to you all the insight's been fantastic and to be honest I could do a part two of this because I think there's still so much that like to to sort of discuss but um I'm afraid that's all that we have time for today I think I'm just putting it out there I think we should do like a revisiting podcast in a couple of years time or like a year's time and see where you all are then because I think you're all in such amazing trajectories and um your work that you do for dementia research is fantastic as well and so yeah as I said, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Um, but if you can't get enough of this topic, then you can visit Dementia Researcher website and take a look at the show notes. And there you'll be able to find a full transcript, biographies of our guests, uh, blogs and links to the resources that we've discussed. And um, I'd like to thank our incredible guests, Dr. Claire Durant, um, Ian Harrison and Dame Cano Kelly. Um, I'm Dr. Fiona McLean and you've been listening or watching uh, the Dementia Researcher podcast. to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support. 